In addition to the great programming WFUV gives you, we're also a training ground for the next generation of ethical journalists, dedicated sports reporters, knowledgeable engineers, and creative videographers. WFUV offers real-world working experience to Fordham University students. Your membership helps us do that. Become a member today at WFUV.org or call 877-938-8907. I'm Casey Candela, and this is Fordham Conversations. On this week's show, I'm talking with British writer Nick Cohn about feminism, who wears the crown of rock and pop, and the real story of why Pete Townsend wrote Pinball Wizard. I'm here with writer Nick Cohn in his lovely backyard by a pond in upstate New York. So, Nick, why don't you tell me about the novel you're working on? Ah, right, in at the deep end. Um, it's a work called Dirty Pictures, and it is a massive undertaking in which I'm trying to, it's set in London, uh, and I'm trying to encompass the moral landscape of the last 60 years, and the key words would be shame and desire. Those are the two sort of prisms through which I'm doing it. And it's life has experienced over those 60 years by a vast uh, array of characters. And it may not be possible to do it, uh, issue it all in one volume, but we'll see when I finish, which I hope will be in about two years. How is it writing about London without being in London? It helps. Um, what I know about London is in there now. It's in the hard drive. I was born there and I've been back and forth all my life. So if I don't know it now, I'm not going to find it out by doing a bit of research. Probably when I finish, I'll do a sort of retreading of steps to make sure that I haven't made some ridiculous mistakes. But in fact, the distance is very helpful. Um, I've tended always to write at one remove. When, when I wrote about rock and roll, I went off to the west coast of Ireland to write it, you know, where it's safe about writing. There'd have been no rock and roll which would show up at my door. How did you get the idea for, for the novel? How did you encounter it? I think the, the genesis of the, the novel was simply a matter of getting older and approaching I'm now 70, and as I went through my 60s, I began to think, you know, you've been writing for 50 years. My, my first book was published in my teens. What changes, and is there a way to fictionally encompass that? It's the opposite of a preachy book where I'm sort of making points, but is there a way to actually relive it all again? And um, in some way, capture what it has been to be alive in that place in my time. So will the book span the past 50 or 60 years? It will. It'll, it, it goes, uh, the protagonist is just a little bit older than me. Basically the book kicks into existence at um, 1961. Tell me a little bit about how you come across a topic for a book. It's hard always to put your finger on the moment at which an idea suddenly solidifies. And I've always found it quite mysterious because 
one minute it's not there at all and then suddenly it's not only there, it's totally taken over your life. Um, I've never looked around for subjects. What happens to me is that um, I go out, I do my life, I'm intensely curious, I want to see this scene and that scene and, and learn, know something about different cultures and different people and so on. And at some point in that, from time to time, I'll suddenly think, you know, that's a book. Um, and sometimes it's fictional, and sometimes I've written novels, and um, sometimes it's non-fiction. How do you decide between fiction and non-fiction? I think that's decided for me. Um, I'm thinking now of uh, a book I wrote about Broadway about 20 five years ago called The Heart of the World, yeah, that's right. I just began to, I'd been at that time, I'd lived many years in New York City, and Broadway was my beat, up and down from, from the Battery all the way up to the West Side. It was a street that always fascinated me, and suddenly I noticed that things were changing very, very quickly as real estate values changed. The New York that I, loved and had come to see as my hometown was suddenly you know not only under threat but basically about to be tsunamied quite suddenly um, there was this book which a friend of mine john bradshaw had once said in a bar about five or six years before i actually started writing it said to me you know you're so involved with broadway in different ways and i don't mean broadway the theater i meant the street you should write about it. And I wasn't ready at that time. Then Bradshaw died. I still wasn't ready. And then three years later, suddenly there it was. So I started to walk Broadway and that took me far, far too long. <laughs> How long did it take to walk from, from end to end? Well, the idea was to end up in the Bronx. And I never got past Times Square. And that was three years. Uh, I'm not saying that every minute of three years was spent on, on Broadway, but I suppose 80% of it was. I read parts of the book. Did you draw inspiration from people you actually met along Broadway? Oh yeah. I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, there, there are some names changed and characters disguised and so on. But it's it is exactly. You know, that's what Broadway was. Those were the people, many of the people I didn't change their names, and they, um, you know, those portraits are as accurate as I could make them. Have you been down to Broadway recently? Well, I haven't walked it. Um, I have been, you know, I go into the city from time to time and uh, it's essentially unrecognizable. It's just a glorified shopping mall. The people that I talked to, of course, many of them are now dead, but they were press agents, they were performers, they were artists, they were city politicians, but scuffling city politicians and and so forth, a huge range of different types of people. And none of them would be able to afford a rent in a million years now in, in, on the new Broadway. So there's very, very little. And even the venues, the, the bars and the restaurants, and let alone the hotels, the sort of flea pit hotels that uh, I haunted then, there's hardly one or two left. And when the owners, die, then they'll be gone as well. 
Another thing you're known for in the States is um, your 1969 book, Awapa Blue And yeah. that book is part of the reason why you're labeled as a rock journalist or the father of rock journalism. Why don't you identify as that? Well, it never occurred to me to think to myself, first of all, the rock critic as a, a genre didn't really exist. I, I wrote the book in 68, 67 did it for me. I didn't want to be uh, after 67 and the sort of summer of acid. I, I didn't really want to, I, I saw no future for myself in, in rock and roll. So at that point, certainly in Europe, I was the only person in my generation writing about pop music at all. Everybody else was writing from the position of middle-aged, mostly jazz buffs saying, isn't it shocking about the Rolling Stones or isn't it shocking? So I had such an easy, I mean, I did had a huge passion for, for rock and for, for pop, super pop as I call it, um, for Brill Building and Phil Spector and so on. And I was the only writer in London, certainly, who did. Everybody else hated that stuff. But when it was over, and it was over quite suddenly for me when the people I liked suddenly started dropping acid and thinking they had the secret of the universe. And the other thing that happened was that I came to America behind that book when it was published here in, in, um, in 69 and went up to the Apollo and saw James Brown live. And I just thought, oh, you know, white boys, I'm sorry. <laughs> I feel that I'm, I'm sorry for your trouble and I feel your pain, but no. And so from then on, I mean, I, I knew country blues and so on, but what was acceptable in the way of sort of boundarizing black music, white bands taking black music and diluting it and twisting it for their purposes suddenly wasn't acceptable to me and it wasn't interesting. And I'm often accused of having said rock and roll is dead, but I never said that. I never thought it. I could see that it was going to be immensely successful. It was just no good for me. I mean, it didn't suit my purposes anymore. It didn't interest me. And uh, with a few exceptions, um, until hip-hop came in, I wasn't really interested in what well, the music that was on the charts. Uh, except as a from a social point of view, like with disco, I was interested in the way that um, a very outsider, black, gay form, you know, crossed over to be in Bay Ridge and, and, and sort of, you know, all over the world. That was interesting. But um, even then, I didn't play a lot of disco records when I went home overnight. In fact, none. Without your help, Fordham Conversations wouldn't be here. WFUV's member-supported, non-commercial public radio. We rely on your financial support to help us produce programs like Fordham Conversations. If you're already a member, thanks for all your support. If you haven't made a contribution yet, do it now at WFUV.org or call 877-938-8907. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM. I'm Casey Candela. Today I'm discussing literature, feminism, and rock and roll with writer Nick Cohn. You've been in the writing world for half a century more. Yeah. 
how has the culture of writing changed? Well, that is something where, where maybe Rolling Stone magazine doesn't know about it, but most people now know that if you want to get serious about writing, read a woman, <laughs> read women. And that was not true. When I started um, writing in the, in the early 60s, there was giant women talents. Um, you know, Mavis Gallant or Muriel Spark or, I mean, Iris Murdoch. But the casual reader, it was Norman Mailer, it was Truman Capote, it was the usual suspects and so on. I don't think that would be true now. I think women writers are respected and they do. In fact, of course, women readers drive the market and I think things have, have changed. And uh, I just went through a year where I only read female writers and it was fascinating for various reasons to do with my own work. I, I have to, uh, I've had to go back and read, let a few men back in. But I was reading the other, not long ago, uh, Eileen Miles was saying that men ought to stop writing for the next 50 years. And I know that was half tongue in cheek, but she's got a very good point. I mean, unfortunately, I don't have 50 years to wait, so I have to keep carrying on. But she does. I mean, Almost everything that I've read in the last few years that really made me stop and think, you know, I never saw that. Or Why did you decide to only read female writers for a year? It started, it, was, it wasn't really a plan. I didn't actually say to myself, okay, you're only going to read women writers. I was finding myself reading more and more Anne Carson and being satisfied and then reading Jonathan Franzen and not being satisfied. And so, and you know, other examples. Uh, and then suddenly I find myself on this string and I thought, just keep going, keep going from one to, to another. Most of the, although the protagonist in my own novel is male, he's simply uh, the carrier of the story. The drivers of the, sto uh, the story, of the, the narrative are all women. So I suppose it was partly um, self-serving in the sense that uh, to fully inhabit my women, I felt I should spend a year as a sort of surrogate woman <laughs> in my reading. What do female novelists bring to the table that's different than what male, male novelists bring? There's just a flexibility in the female mind and uh, imagination. What I find, and there are exceptions, Roberto Bolaño was flexible and, and surprising. But what I tend to find is that if I've read the first 50 pages of a man's novel, I pretty much know where this is going. And uh, it'll be either well done or it'll tail off, but I feel the ground solid underneath me. When I read, uh, say, Miranda July's novel or something, I have no idea. I mean, it might be, you know, on a teeter-totter, it's like, whoa, <laughs> where did that come from? Whoops, <laughs> where did that come from? And uh, the first bad man. Uh, and it's simply the, this thing of examining everything, okay, 
start off by examining something from a fresh point of view, but how if we do it from that point of view, and then the third point of view, and in the end you feel that you've be, you have been thoroughly worked out and that you've somehow begun to see, be taken to places you didn't expect and you're seeing things that you didn't see when you launched yourself in. What does your wife think of all the, the female novelists you've been reading? She's quite pleased. I, I go charging ahead and when, when I come staggering out of my study over there and go, unbelievable. <laughs> she's, she, she's glad to pick it up. I, I'm a quicker, and more voracious and more obsessive reader than Michaela. And so, um, you know, in, in a sense, I, I do some winnowing from her. I, I glean out the, the grain. You've also been in the nonfiction world. How do you think the culture of journalism and reporting has changed, particularly for women? Well, it's changed completely in two basic ways. One is that uh, reporting new journalism and the New Yorker writing of the previous generation of the A.J. Liebling and um, Joseph Mitchell generation took incredible liberties with, with fact and truth and basically just used a sort of fact, um, a factual basis to say whatever you wanted to say, as it were. Um, and that was because there were no fact checkers. And I think the readers kind of knew that they weren't getting, you know, court testimony on a stack of Bibles and they went along with it. And that, that obviously, I think for the better has, has gone. But when you, which I've done in the last five, 10 years, reread all those people, whether it's Liebling or the new journalists of the, the, the Gonzo people, it's incredible to me that anyone could have ever thought that this was anything but a work of imagination with a factual basis. So that's gone. And then the other thing, there were very, very few women, um, even in New York, I mean, there was Lillian Ross and so on, but if you had a, a or in, in rock writing, there was Ellen Willis and they were giants but they were so isolated that everyone knew oh yes yeah, she's the female writer <laughs> you know among 30 40 males i think that began to change in the 80s i i don't know what the percentage is but now you don't really think about it except in one way which is that i know there are a lot of female writers about rock but they don't seem to be in the New York Times, or you know, I mean, they they have blogs and they write for ma little magazines and so on, but that still seems to be very slanted towards males. I can't, um, apart from Ellen Willis, I can't think of any sort of um, banner name in in rock writing that was uh, female, except for her. You mentioned accountability earlier. Um and the writing at The New Yorker and other similar magazines. Do you think it's possible to tell a story that is truthful but not factual? Well, the problem with that is it's very easy to get into semantics where you're actually justifying what isn't justifiable. And I certainly took, you know, outrageous, outrageous. Went well over the boundaries. And I could uh, say, 
yes, I was in pursuit of a larger truth. But the fact is, I could have told that truth and either said, I've seen this, but this is a fictional story completely based on something that I've witnessed, or I could have stuck to the facts. Um, I think there was a tremendous amount of fudging that went on in the 50s, 60s and 70s, and that's gradually died out. So that now we have a culture where if you make something up and pretend it's true, you have to actually be a deliberate criminal. You have to deliberately try to mislead your editor and, and so on. Was there a precipitating factor that, that marks the change towards greater accountability and focus on the facts? Well, I think that people got sued. Uh, I think writers got sued for taking lives and twisting them too much. And that brought in the fact checker. I must say, I mean, after I wrote Tribal Rights of Saturday Night, I, I, I'm more or less exited from journalism. So I, I'm, your guess is as good as mine. But my, my sense as a, a reader is that um, the walls began to close in on, on, on fictionalizing, on faction, as, um, as Norman Mailer called it. And uh, you were held accountable. And that changed the whole thing. And then for me personally, when I was 20, when I was 30, accountability didn't enter into anything. I had no moral compass at all. Everything had come so easily for me. I mean, the first book I wrote was really just a training wheels. No, uh, you know, and it was a novel. The timing was right and it was published. And it was not only published, but you know, it did well. Uh, so everything just dropped in my lap, and um, that wasn't good for me, as it is, tends not to be for anybody. And so it took me, I would say, until I was in my late 30s to develop a moral compass and realize, look, there are consequences. What ev everything you do, every move you make, every word you say, there are consequences. Which of the works that you've written do you do you consider an underdog in your own literary canon? I would have said the Broadway book, but um, that's now coming out in Britain as a vintage classic, which I guess means you're not an underdog with that. But over here, yeah, I mean, that did, I thought that was a good book, um, very alive, and uh, I'm quite pleased with that. The main thing, uh, the last book I published, Trickster, which was about New Orleans and about rap in New Orleans, I thought was around about my best and it came out at the time of Katrina and nobody wanted to hear about um, Project Kids and, and so on and it got lost in the, in the wash of um, what I found extraordinarily sentimental um, New Orleans and national treasure and great music which really New Orleans rap some of it really was great and Lil Wayne at his peak was you know unbelievable but New Orleans music of the kind that you know say Treme show sort of tended to celebrate is really completely uncreative I mean rehashing stuff that was done much better in the 50s and 60s you know if you go to New Orleans now uh, which is, it's a sad thing because the New Orleans that 
I loved so much did get washed away in Katrina and the neighborhoods are not coming back or not in any recognizable form. But, uh, you know, if you go down Frenchman Street and you listen to the music coming out of the doors, I mean, it's just pale echoes of great stuff. That you first encountered New Orleans when you were on tour with Who. That's right, yeah. And um, one thing, a fun tidbit about your life that our listeners might not know is, as the story goes, you gave Pete Townsend a bad review on his rock musical Tommy. And he knew you loved pinball, so he wrote Pinball Wizard to win your favor. Is that really how it all went down? Not at all. But it's a good story. But I don't think Pete believes that either. Um, what happened was that uh, we knew each other, as you did in the 60s, and his manager, or the Who's managers, um, Chris Stamp and above all Kit Lambert, they were my closest friends. So Kit, who was the producer on Tommy, the album, asked me to come into the studio and listen to what was going on. I did, and I thought it was very solemn, and it didn't, didn't do much for me in its early form. I would never have given it a bad review. I mean, I was, you know, I basically liked the Who's music very much. I mean, the worst that could have happened was that uh, I would have desisted and, and not written about it. But in fact, I would have written about it. And unless it was dreadful, I would have said, I would have looked for the good stuff. And Pete knew that perfectly well. It just makes a better story that when I said, uh, it's a bit heavy, isn't it? A bit, bit draggy. And then he came up, which he did. He did come up with Pinball Wizard. And I was a good pinball player. And he knew it would flatter the ass off me. And it did. But that's not why I gave it a good review. <laughs> Do you still play pinball? Not so much in recent years. It, <laughs> I'm getting into this. Oh, in the good old days, I should have been there. But no, modern uh, pinball machines, contemporary pinball machines, are in the digital age, they're not the same level of skill, I don't find. And also, let's say, let's be honest, at 70, your wrist isn't as supple as it used to be. So maybe, in fact, I'm using uh, the, the new machines as an excuse for the fact that I'm Alex Rodriguez. I'm a washed-up ball player. What was the first album you ever bought? I had albums bought for me. Um, my love affair with New Orleans started long, long, long before I went to New Orleans. I didn't get to New Orleans until the early 70s. But when I was in the mid 50s when I was nine or ten, um, perhaps a little older than that, I stumbled across um, Jerry Royal Morton's fantastic autobiography, spoken autobiography, oral autobiography for the Library of Congress, Mr. Jerry Roll. And I thought, what a world, what a world. And um, there was in, I, I grew up in a little, uh, in those days, a little town on the west coast of Ireland called. Derry, London Derry officially, but Derry. And there was uh, on the on Strand Road, the sort of main drag, there was a little record shop, a guy who'd been to New Orleans in the Merchant Navy. And uh, so he started telling me stories about New Orleans and so on. My mother had an old childhood friend who was in New York and she got in touch with her. 
and this woman was in her mid-80s and she started going into record shops once a year and buying me one volume of Jerry Roll's Library of Congress, the things that had gone into the book. And so the latter part of my childhood is sort of waiting there for you know, Santa to get down that chimney and hand me my volume seven of Mr. Jelly Roll. Myself, you know, I was on the equivalent of a dime a week or maybe a quarter a week pocket money, so it took a long time. So all I could ever do was, um, I just came in at the tail end of 78. So the first 78 I bought was Little Richard's Tutti Frutti, which then became a Wop Bop, a Loo Bop, a Lap Bam Boom. Uh, and then some Elvis Heartbreak Hotel I got on 78. Then I gradually went to EPs, but the first um, album I actually got was uh, the one that was just called Elvis, with the golden sunrise, ridiculous colours of him sort of lit in the new dawn. <laughs> uh, it was a wonderful bit of, sort of bad art, you know, bad illustration art. Well, it's really, it was photo, what we would now call Photoshop, but it was colours never seen in life. Who are you listening to right now? Kendrick Lamar, certainly, that, I mean, I listen to that a lot. Living now by a pond in the middle of a wood countryside, so I'm somehow Kendrick Lamar, let's say Kanye, just doesn't sit quite so well with the, with the landscape. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Oh, my pleasure. I'd like to thank my guest, Nick Cohn. I'd also like to thank my producer, Robin Shannon. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Casey Candela. 